Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queens Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Thanks, Thomas. Situated just right now. Uh, I know you were uh, sad that you couldn't be up here and and, uh, getting all the words out, so I gave you like 17 verses to read, so you could have, have all of that for you. But again, thanks guys for being here. I know it's the B team up here today, but uh, hopefully you'll get something out of it. Uh, so just, just a few months ago, uh, against all of my better judgment, all of my better wisdom, uh, our family, we made this magnificent, brilliant decision to acquire a dog. And, and not just a dog, a puppy dog. <laughs> and, and really not just a puppy dog, but a, a puppy English Springer Spaniel. This is Ollie, Oliver, uh, our, our puppy dog. Um, and Springer Spaniels, I just read today, they, they require two hours of exercise every day. Or else they start to chew things and get into things and do other things. Well, actually, he chews things regardless. He eats paper uh, we can't walk on the sidewalk on the pavement without him grabbing some kind of rubbish and, and ingesting it, and then we see it later, and then he tries to eat it again. But even in all of that, this Ollie, look at him, he's so cute. Uh, the first few days were, were really great and fun. Uh, even getting up in the middle of the night, it was like, you know, he needed to go and, and take a wee in the garden, and uh, like the faintest whip, whimper, we were like jumping out of bed. Let's go help, right? Ashley jumps up, takes him out, and uh, even that was kind of fun for for a couple days. Uh, Yes, but alas, those days have long gone, and it's been five grueling months, and even last night at the stroke of like, what, three? (laughs) 3 a.m., Ollie is ready to go outside and chase some bird or fox or whatever likely imagined animal that he thinks is out there, Uh, not to wee, just to play. Um, but he's out there. So uh, at the frantic pawing of the little crate door, uh, now, instead of excitedly jumping out of bed, that elicits groans and slinging of the covers off and and, uh, a lot of other language that maybe we shouldn't repeat. But uh, it turning, turning Ashley and I, who I believe are generally pretty relaxed, laid back, uh, you know, easygoing people into some irritated, angry, exasperated Mr. and Mrs. Hyde. So naturally, I'm here today to talk about anger. <laughs> anger is an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain we've all been angry before. Um, it's probably uh, at one time or another, anger has caused us to do something say something that we probably regret, want to take back, want to suck those words back into our mouth. Um, And almost certainly, we've all experienced the force of someone else's anger against us and and understood what that's like. So today, we're going to take a look at what the Bible says about anger. We're going to try to understand 
what God has to say about it, what he thinks about it, and, and what we're to do about it, right? That's, that's really what we're here for. So we can move on from Ollie. But So we'll start with this. We first, we have to understand what anger is, right? We have to know where it comes from. What is anger? Why do we have anger, right? We need to be aware of the origin and the outcome of our anger. Actually, to understand anger, anger at its core is actually a good thing. It's basically good. Now, you, you might question that. You believe me? But in Ephesians that Thomas just read, um, Paul, encouraging Christians, right, uh, to alter our way of living, saying that when you heard about Christ and were taught, right, that's how he started that, when, when you heard this, right, you were taught about Christ, that we should put off our old self, right, change, put off falsehood, and yet then he says, in your anger, do not sin, right, the ESV actually says, be angry and don't sin, that's, that's a command. That's an imperative that, that says we probably should, should be angry at times. Is that right? Um, I think that's true. James, the third passage that we read, says be slow to anger. Doesn't prohibit anger, doesn't condemn anger in general, but offers us some wise counsel of how to be angry. Because anger, particularly slow anger, is an attribute of God. You might be thinking to yourself, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I like the idea of an angry God. It doesn't sound like the kind of God that I necessarily want to follow. Maybe, isn't, isn't my God a God of love, uh, not of anger? I like the idea a bit better. Um, you know, loving God, not an angry God. But if you have a God who never gets angry, you can't have a God of love, right? Because anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And not getting angry when we should is actually the epitome of hate. Because anger, here's where I'm going to get it to you, anger at its core, this is what it is. It's, it's a destructive energy that's released in defense of something that we love or care about, right? It's, it's designed to protect. It's designed to, to come after something that's not right, right? And so it's actually a good thing. And God shows it in the right places. Because if something you love is really threatened, you get angry. That's the natural response. When you, when you love the person, right, dying of cancer, you're angry at the cancer that's destroying them. If I love my kids, I'm angry at the moral cancer that's rotting at their their soul, and, and causing them to be dishonest or rebel or do the things that we, we know they ought not do, right? If I love the glory of God, I should be angry at whatever diminishes or attacks him. Jesus was a person who got angry, sometimes especially so, <laughs> right? In Mark 3, uh, he's, he heals a man with a shriveled hand, and the Pharisees are standing around, and they're, they're actually upset with Jesus for doing this miracle because uh, this happened to be done on the Sabbath. And they said, you can't do that, Jesus. And Jesus gets mad. He gets angry. He's filled with anger, Mark says, and that, that they would promote their religious custom over the love of a fellow human being, and his anger toward them grew out of his love for this man. 
In Matthew 21, Jesus gets violently angry at the religious leaders and the money changers who have uh, basically kicked the temp- out of the temple any outsiders, and, and they're selling things, and they're, 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 they're changing what the temple was meant to be. And out of that anger, he built, makes a whip out of some cords and, like, absolutely kicks them out, right? Just, I mean, I'm trying to imagine this scene. He's flipping tables and whipping people, right? I mean, I don't, it's amazing. But the funny part is he doesn't regret it later. He doesn't come back to the disciples and say, you know, I'm sorry, guys. I, got, I let things get out of control. I actually uh, got carried away. I probably should have used words rather than those whips. But he doesn't, right? He went to the cross sinless. So he wasn't wrong. That wasn't a sin, right? His anger was directed at a right thing. We should be angry when we hear about the rights of others being trampled on, right? We should be angry when we hear stories of people being abused by people that they trusted. In the face of evil, if we aren't angry, we aren't loving. Jesus got angry because he cared so much. And if you never get angry, you must not be much like Jesus. So when we're angry, though, we should be asking ourselves, what am I defending, right? What is the thing that I love that I'm protecting here? Our anger is actually misdirected because our love is misdirected. St. Augustine says, the root of our sinfulness is our disordered loves. It doesn't always mean we love bad things, though sometimes it does, but that means that we make good things into ultimate things. We love good things too much, right? Comfort, our comfort isn't necessarily bad until we make it the ultimate thing. I love uninterrupted sleep so much that when Ollie threatens that, I get angry and it starts to rise up inside me, right? Receiving approval for what we do at work or in some other context is actually a good thing. But when it becomes the overpowering thing, we don't get the recognition we feel we deserve. We're angry at the system. We're angry at whoever we felt should have given us that approval. And we're angry at the one who got it instead of us. If control and power becomes our idol that we love too much, we get angry that someone else has power and their decision is different than ours. And we say things like, well, that's just stupid. They're a moron. They don't get it. I should have been able to make that decision. They should have done it my way, right? That's that's the point, right? The control has become too much, the power that we want, right? The point is our anger becomes problematic because our loves are out of order. We deal with misdirected anger, right? The way we deal with that misdirected anger is by addressing the misdirected loves that are fueling it. Misdirected anger destroys. The energy released, remember, anger is destructive energy released against something we love. It's still destructive, but all of a sudden that destroying is coming back at the things we don't intend. Right? Our bodies feel this. Excessive anger can cause problems. Increased blood pressure, other physical changes associated with anger make it difficult to think straight harms your physical and mental health. 
uh, anger is actually more detrimental to your heart, your physical heart, than overexertion, than stress, and poor nutrition. You believe that? Harvard did a study. It says anger can trigger a heart attack, stroke, or risky heart rhythm. Have you ever been so angry that it made your blood boil? In fact, anger can trigger physiological changes that affect your blood, temporarily elevating your risk of heart attack or related problem. Research shows that in two hours after an angry outburst, a person has slightly higher risk of having chest pain, a heart attack, a stroke, or a risky heart rhythm. Proverbs 14.30 confirms this. It says, a tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is a rottenness to the bones. The word translated there as passion uh, of mental emotions of envy, anger, or jealousy. These three cause the bones to rot. We call that today osteoporosis. Your bones are rotting. So if if anger's actually good, but this is how anger treats it, like how we how it responds in our own bodies, what are we to do with that? How 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 do we how do we think about that? Shouldn't shouldn't at least we be careful how and when we get angry? I think that's that's a, a minimum. Uh, your ability to make wise choices. This other Harvard study. I was just really into Harvard, I guess. Um, it says, angry people tend to rely on cognitive shortcuts, easy rules of thumb, rather than more uh, systematic reasoning, right? Your actually ability to reason when you're angry goes out the window. I mean, how many times have we said, uh, I don't know, I wasn't thinking, I was just angry. It's literally true. You weren't thinking. You, it's gone. You don't have the ability to think straight, right? Um, the reason we can't, we don't advise you to make cords and whip people and get them out of the temple is because you can't control it the way Jesus can. <laughs> We make poor decisions, and we often make things worse. Since we're not God, we can't control our anger the way he does. But you know what else anger affects negatively, right? It's destroying when we don't want it to. Anger destroys our community. Unresolved anger will destroy relationships like that. It, it creates fractures that will, let, that will, let me start again. <laughs> creates fractures that left to rot will disintegrate the community and ultimately divide it permanently, right? We know this. This is not surprising news. Anger will do this thing. It destroys. Um, this is why uh, in John 17, Jesus is in the garden. He's, he's, he's saying a final prayer. It's sometimes known as the high priestly prayer. But in, in, in John 17, verse 20, it says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us now. I'm asking this for them, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus prays for unity within the body. He's praying against sin of anger. He's praying against that. So if this is the case, what does the Bible suggest we do? We need to be able to recognize and reorder our anger. So that's point number two. 
First thing we have to do is recognize that we're angry. Anger is interesting. Uh, those of you who are in our community group, uh, in, the, in the guide this week, I put in there this, this short sentence. You may have caught it. Uh, anger is, is the emotion most like an addictive substance. Do you see that? We deny it, and it drives us deeper uh, into more and more anger. Right? You ever notice that when you're angry, it, it's like you have a desire to just be angry about more things, and you just keep getting angry? It just it, it cycles you back down into itself. Recognizing that we are angry actually helps us move on, right? We have to notice it. Um, and that's the first step. We have to analyze the anger because what, what makes us angry is actually not what happened, but what, what we tell ourselves about it, right? It's, it's the, the mental thought that we're running this through in our head. You don't actually, I mean, you might get angry when someone does something wrong to you, but you know, it's like you leave and you think about that thing, you get angrier and angrier right? It's, it's not really the thing anymore. It's just what you keep telling yourself. So we have to analyze it. We have to think about what we actually are doing. What am I defending, right? Let's go back to that. What do I love right now that's being threatened? Is it, is it I'm actually angry at the dog? No, I'm actually angry that I'm not getting sleep. That's what I'm angry about. And then I can, then I can actually relieve the dog from his problem, right? It's not you, it's me. I actually like sleep more than you. We'll be all right. But like, that's a silly example, but that's how it works, right? So if we can take the thing back and look at what we're actually angry about, what, what, what we love that's being threatened, it's usually an idol, right? It's usually something that we've elevated to a place that it should never be. And finally, we have to reorder our anger. To do that, we have to resist rather than react. The James verse, James 1.19, says, My brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Right? He's telling you, you're actually not good at this anger thing, so you need to slow down. Take some time. Don't, re don't react. Right? That's good advice just in general. How many times have I told my kids that? Guys, just, just take a second. Breathe. All right. We have to perform restraint rather than recklessness. Romans 12, 17 through 21, the middle verses, uh, 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Restraint. Let God handle it right? Hold back. Redeem rather than revenge. At the end of the Ephesians passage, Ephesians 4 says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And then later it says, you know, get rid of bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander. Uh, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you, right? The, the target of our anger should be, should be the problem, the sin, not the person. If, if we're angry at, the, at a thing, it might be right, but it's not about the person. It's about the thing that they're doing. If they have a sin, we can be angry at that sin. If they have a sickness, we can be angry at that sickness, but it's not the person. So the danger here is I just gave you a lot of ways to fix anger. Fix it. It gave us a lot of ways. I mean, even they're, they're from the Bible. James, Romans, Ephesians. They're from it. 
but it, it kind of feels like a, a to-do list of how to, how to fix it. And what we all know about a to-do list of how to fix anger or any other thing that we do wrong, uh, they generally don't work. Uh, why is that? Because ultimately we need Christ to redeem us and redirect our love. And that's really the point. If the thing that we're angry about is because we've loved the wrong things, we need to love something new, something better. If we're defending something that we love is what leads to anger, then we must love the right things and love them rightly. The, the Shema of God, right, from Deuteronomy, the, the thing that you've all heard, I'm sure, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. It's not just words. That's, that's a directive. If we love God well, if we love him first, then we can, uh, we, we puts our anger in a proper perspective because it puts those other loves down on the pecking order. When we love God first and for, foremost, we are regenerated to love the things God loves. Let me give you uh, a short illustration here. There's, there's, a, there's a few seasons in life that um, God has ordained to help us understand something about ourselves uh, and something about uh, who he is. One of those is marriage, right? So for those of you who are married or have been married, uh, you can start appreciating the needs and desires of someone beside yourself, maybe for the first time. Uh, because now you live with someone else and, and uh, they have something that might not look like the thing that you like, right? And, and, and so now there's this idea of compromise that just comes into your life. What an amazing uh, piece. Um, and so hopefully, hopefully this leads you uh, to repentance, right? And ultimately a better relationship with your spouse and with God. Uh, Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Marriage with a subtitle, uh, a provocative subtitle, I would say, and says, actually, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than make us happy? Let me say that again. What if God designed marriage to make us more holy than make us happy? Like, sacrifice uh, is, a, is a thing here. But you know what? After marriage, probably the next level up, then you have children, and this, this knocks it up another notch because uh, now we have to sacrifice in new and seemingly never-ending ways, right? I heard it described that when, you're, you know, uh, when you get married, but before you have kids, it's like being on a really long date. <laughs> and then it all ends when you have kids. Um, it's a joke, but it's kind of true. <laughs> uh, parents, we, we sacrifice so much for our children. Uh, it's... it's I said literal dying to oneself. It's not literal because we don't die, but it's close to that, right? You have to just put that on you all the time. Decide, you know what, today we're going to do, you know, when they're little, it's like, I'm going to go to the park one more time. I'm going to go to that playground and walk around that circle, you know, one more time. I don't want to do that. I'd rather do something else. The master's is on. I might do that instead. But no. We sacrifice for our kids. Even really poor parents, as long as they've committed to stay being parents, they're making sacrifices. They may not want to, but they're doing it all the time. So it, it doesn't matter. It's, um, parents are massively sacrificing. But you know what? Kids grow up, and at some point, that kid becomes a teenager. And they do something... Cross that, or you do something that crosses their will, right? Because they have a will for their life. You do something that crosses it. 
and you ask them to do something that everyone in this room knows is harmful or uh, at least detrimental to their future. And you say, you know what, that's probably not a great idea. You probably shouldn't do that. And they look at you. You can imagine this. I don't, this has never happened to me. Don't worry. Um, but you can imagine this. You've seen this, right? The, the child looks at the parent after all the things the parent has done. And they look at him and they say, you don't love me. You've never done anything for me. I hate you. Right? We know that kid. How do they do that? Imagine the pain that the parent feels in that moment. Like, this is the most unjustified, disordered anger that must exist, right? Like, I have reared you, raised you, sacrificed for you, like, your whole life, what feels like my whole life, and this is what I get. So in that moment, the parent has a few choices, right? One is they can withdraw. If you withdraw and let the child go and you lose the child, they go off and do their thing, relationship is fractured, you may never get the relationship back that you want. Secondly, you could respond in kind, right? They were angry, they yelled back at me, I can go and put it right back to them. Actually, I've got a lot more practice at this than you do. I'm gonna win. Destroy the relationship on the other end. The third way is to make a surgical strike directly at the problem and gently and kindly insist on the truth and absorb their anger without repaying it, right? This is the only way to respond. It's the only way to make that, hopefully resolve it uh, without making things worse. We get this wrong all the time, but, but this, is the, this is the moment, right? The problem, not the person. Insist on the truth and absorb, absorb that anger. And maybe to redeem the child, bring the child back into the fold. You guys may have guessed this already, but the reality is this child is all of us at one point or another. We're angrily looking at God. We may not say it or admit it out loud, but we're angrily looking at God saying, you haven't done anything for me. I don't know if you love me, right? Like, I'm running after something that you said is not good, and I want it. And if you don't let me have it, you must not love me. You must not be, have my best interest at heart. Our anger from our distorted and disordered love, we feel offended because we haven't gotten our way. The things that we truly love have been threatened and destroyed, and so we feel that anger. And you know what? God has a choice. He could withdraw and just let you run after that thing that would ultimately destroy you. Or he could get angry and just call down fire from heaven and just crush you immediately. But he doesn't do either of those things. He could be slow to anger. He could love the person and not the sin. He could strike the sin at its root, cut out the cancer, and redeem the person. And the truth is, this is what God has done. Jesus absorbed our disordered love and disordered anger and responds with love. He puts it on himself and hangs it on the cross. So this is the only way to deal with anger. We can only recognize and reorder our anger, right, to do those things because we can, we can only do it if we love God most of all. And we can love God because he looked upon our anger with him and he was unimaginably, 
unimaginably patient with us. And he showed us impossible restraint. And he chose to redeem us. And on a day like today, the day before, I guess, Palm Sunday, right? This is why we remember the cross. This is why we have a season of reflection during Lent to think back about what are, what are my disordered loves and what are my disordered angers and sins that pushed Jesus onto the colt on Palm Sunday and pushed him into Jerusalem and led him to the cross on Good Friday. And this is why next week we'll celebrate Easter because he took it, absorbed it, and then rose again. So this is, I don't know, I, have a good, I don't have a good end, but this is it. <laughs> and today, particularly special, we have a good, uh, an opportunity to reflect on this in a special way with Holy Communion, with the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and so I'm going to call a couple of the leaders to serve us. Natalie, would you come up? And we'll, we'll take a minute to do this, um, to really take this time to think, to consider these things.